Good morning. Good morning to everyone. So, come and sit. Sit quietly for a few minutes to settle our body and mind. Bringing our awareness to this room at this moment. your breath, or any object you may want to focus on, and then trying to focus in on that, try to do so with alertness, attention, and some sense of delight in it. Next, we'll take some time in visualizing the merit field in front of us, with Manjushri as the main figure, surrounded by lineage masters of all traditions within Buddhism, including the lineage of the profound tradition, or the masters of the profound lineage, led by Nagarjuna, Aryadeva, and others to the present day. Think of Manjushri as the personification of the wisdom, perfect wisdom of all Buddhas for the sake of convenience of relating with that principle of perfect wisdom, we visualize Manjushri here in an embodied form, sporting smile on his face, radiant, representative of Clear, vast, profound wisdom, perfected wisdom, and all of the qualities of perfections. With his hand implements such as the sword and the scripture, symbolic the power 
the role of wisdom in getting us out of this mess of samsara, as well as the subtlest residues of afflictions. Think of ourselves being surrounded by fellow sentient beings, limitless of them surrounding us, joining us in this recitation of the homage to Manjushri, the all sentient beings in human forms, for the sake of convenience in including them in our visualization of reciting the homage prayer together with the hand gestures that we would like to see them to be. Yet at the same time, think of them as deeply immersed in their own predicaments within samsara in general, and in particular there, pertaining to their individual situations. All mired in suffering and suffering generating causes with afflictions and the ignorance exercising firm grip on them. Yet all of them embedded with this aspiration for happiness, however they may visualize it, imagine it to be. But anything associated with happiness, peace, they all aspire to it. Anything they associate with suffering, misery, they all seem in wanting to be free from them. Think of our affinity along these basic lines. as well as of our hopes, worries, aspirations, goals, yet at the same time how far off we are in let alone realizing them, realizing the aspiration, and even imagining them properly. Yet in the midst of this confusion, we do not stay away from making ourselves available to each other, extending our helping hands directly and indirectly for just about anything that we aspire to achieve, that we go about pursuing. Even our very survival is dependent on each other at any given time of our existence. Thinking along these lines, try to develop a sense of empathy, compassion, growing into bodhicitta, a strong longing to be able to do something practically to alleviate their suffering to repay their kindness, 
And at this moment, we are serving our part in leading them all in the recitation, in the meditation. Remembering the qualities to Manjushri and its connection to our aspiration to full freedom from the suffering that we are mighty. Let's sit for a while, holding bodhicitta within our mind, the aspiration to attain full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. By way of strengthening our motivation in bodhicitta, let me add that in just about anything that we do, bodily, verbally, mentally, anything, one thing that ensures it's being virtuous is whether we have a good motivation or not. Sometimes I make this distinction between intention and motivation. You may intend to do something, to sit here, to come here, to listen, to understand. But what is the motivation behind that? For what purpose? With what motivation? What motivates us to do that? That's the motivation which is crucial in determining what the action becomes, virtuous, non-virtuous, just mere neutral. It's very important to always remind ourselves of generating a proper appropriate virtuous motivation behind everything that we do. In a way, just at that very moment, we remind ourselves of the need of that and are willing to take it up. Just right then and there, our spirits get lightened up. Our works, jobs, services become much lighter, delightful to engage in. Just then and there, we can see the benefit of it. But the benefit are based those apparent ones. There will be much long-term benefits from these actions with such motivation. Among the different kinds of motivations, bodhicitta is the highest. 
as someone has very happily called, when it comes to thinking big, nothing can be bigger than Bodhicitta. But the main thing, making it even stronger for Parma, is then combine it with some sense of conviction in the reality of this seemingly idealistic aspiration, connecting it with our own situation that can be applied to all sentient beings, and then see the connection. First of all, see the need of doing something, and then the question of how, if at all possible, and if so, what would the resultant state look like? Just filling oneself with joy, aspiration, enthusiasm to work for it, particularly connected with the situations of alpha sentient beings, myriads of them, without exception, the prospect of how Bodhisattva can really deliver the utmost outcome, the utmost resultant state, be that in terms of wisdom, in terms of motivation, in terms of capacity, be that in terms of benefiting oneself and others, thinking along those lines how Bodhisattva really stands out as the one and the single, one and the only mindset that humans can come up with as the best shot of our intelligence and smart brain and how that can make a big difference in our own and others' prospects going forward in a very, very assuring, reliable way. That aspiration is aimed at full awakening from Buddhist perspective, a state of being where one is completely freed from the two obscurations, both of the cognitive obscuration and the afflictive obscurations. As a natural law, Attaining the two, one has to first eliminate the obscurations through the obscurations of affliction before being able to do so for the obscurations to cognitive obscuration, obscuration to omniscience. For both of these, it's essential, unless one is very careful and capable of achieving them in one lifetime, which is very rare, very difficult, then we should be thinking of 
learning over lifetimes, for which attaining precious human rebirth with all the facilities conducive to undertaking Dharma practice, continuing it from where one had left, is so essential. And to ensure that, the only means is by engaging in virtuous actions of body, speech, and mind. And for that, very essential part of it is to know what is to avoid, what is to be adopted, Of course, in actually making the move, making a difference, one has to have the foundations of, firm foundation of morality, topped up with as firm and strong basis of concentration. But on top of that, without the wisdom, one will not be able to really move in the direction that one wants to. One could be moving, but keep going up and down, up and down, never getting anywhere closer to either achieving liberation for oneself or that of omniscience. And from among these wisdoms, of course, the important thing is the wisdom of understanding the law of causality in general and that of karma in specific. Together with that, as important, or maybe even more important, is the wisdom of understanding the ultimate reality as it is, without any compromise, without any mistakes. For both of these, hearing, studying, reflecting, and then, of course, integrating it within one's own personality, is very essential. Wisdom plays a very crucial role. Just as we all know, in accumulating non-virtues, non-virtuous actions, we very often and most, most mostly do that particularly that of the animals who are not do that out of ignorance, not knowing how to go about it. So not knowing is not an excuse. From the results of karma that you accumulate. And that can be only dispelled by understanding the insight developed into the nature of law, in particular, the nature of law with volition being an active part of it. Both in terms of the causes, causal factors we accumulate, as well as in terms of the resultant state that we undergo, in terms of feelings, be that of happiness, or suffering, misery, So let's once again motivate it.
by bodhicitta and thus determined to use this time together in sharing, understanding, reflecting, focusing, so that we could grow in our efforts, in our actual success in making the move in the right direction as we are motivated by. Okay. So in Uttara Tantra, Maitreya says this Shirabhlesh Didaki, Didani Pungjushem Eichir, Shirabchoyi, Eishini, Tupatishir, Tupatcho. Aside from the wisdom, there are no other means by which these could be abandoned. This referring to the obscurations, true obscurations, both of afflictions and that of cognitive type. And because of that, wisdom is supreme. And the basis for that is first hearing. Therefore, Hearing is supreme, particularly in this context of someone beginning the path, hearing is not something to be looked down upon or compromised with, but rather something to be intently engaged in. And there is another sutra quoted in the commentary by Bishop Tupten or in other words, Name Minya Quinsang Sunam Minya Quinsu. He quotes a sutra, sutra, but doesn't name the sutra, where he says, Rikipu, Jabadandana, share of Jungar Juro, share of the Dana, Numongra to Pshivar Juro, Numumba Mebala, Tuchila Minyeto. Child lineage. If you possess hearing, then you will generate wisdom. If you possess wisdom, then you will fully, completely pacify afflictions. And those who are free from afflictions, they are out of reach. They are off limits for the negative influences. So here the text itself names du, du, maras. Once you have eliminated afflictions, when you are freed from afflictions, then you are off limits for the maras. Maras cannot reach, even if they try, they cannot have any influence on you. There's nothing to latch on. Our It's our afflictions which is the vulnerable part within us, which makes us vulnerable to all these uh, 
influences. So with that, we brace ourselves, this ninth chapter. <laughs> so uh, you got the second dispatch of the uh, of some initial um, stanzas. All I have done, just again, I will not repeat this again and again, but today I will uh, to emphasize that. I mean, I'm not changing anything from the original translation, not even um, meddling with uh, uh, captions, whatnot, that I do not necessarily always all agree, even up to this point. <laughs> but the one that you are given is uh, one uh, word file, so you can have easier way to change or look, whatever. But then the other thing to look at is, uh, compared with the original PDF copy, the the spacing has been changed to kind of put uh, thoughts together, threads of thoughts together, rather than just arbitrarily putting them in four lines together. But at the same time, the numbers are not changed. So that's something you need to remember. And uh, it may be sometimes uh, too much to uh, go through the text as well as suggest how I'm going to change this or that. I'll just do that so those who are able to benefit from it can pay attention to it. Otherwise, you can just let it go out of the window. <laughs> okay, so I'll, I will pick up from where we were last time. Yeah, uh, at, um, before I do that, I want to share some light things. <laughs> light things to light all of us up. <laughs> yeah, last time, last time I shared some story about uh, who were the masters in the Tibetan world, Tibetan Buddhist world, who were uh, very prominent in this teaching on Shantideva's not in terms of, not just in terms of making it popular among masses, but them, but more importantly, themselves embodying the teaching uh, yeah, to such an extent that they kind of gained renown as bodhisattvas themselves. So I was sharing that story. I think I left it incomplete or oh, not so clear. So this is referring to a discussion that is supposed to have happened in in 13th, 12th, 13th century, there was a great translator. Back, back then, translators were also as great practitioners also. So they may be known as translators, but that's not supposed, not supposed to think of them as something less than a practitioner, but they are as intent practitioners themselves, renowned practitioners themselves. So one of them was Pang Lozawa, Lojuit Demba. Lojuit Demba. Stiramati. Stiramati. Pang Lozawa, Lojuit Demba, who lived in 12th, 13th century, 13th, 14th century. And uh, in the course of his 
teaching, they had a discussion among members who, uh, at, by that time, were the greatest in embodying the Shantideva's teaching, particularly Jinju, his text. And during that discussion, they all agreed on two names. <laughs> One is Jesse Tomen Sangbo, the author of the 37 practices of Bodhisattva, who lived in 13th, 14th century. The 13th, 14th century. 1367 was the year he passed away. So, Songkapa would have been 12 years old at that time. <laughs> so, one name was Jesse Tongme Sangbo, another was Jawa Sangba who is a uh, Kaju master. I, th I think uh, specific Kaju, Dukwa Kaju. But it, he is well known across the orders of Tibetan Buddhism to be um, someone who gained Buddhahood. Uh, as I mentioned earlier also, some time ago, there are many names uh, among the Tibetan masters who are commonly ex uh, agreed, uh, accepted to have achieved Buddha Wood, but not all of them are uh, famous. <laughs> not all of them were famous, so no, there was there any need for him. <laughs> so it makes perfect sense, but not all the names are not that famous. Uh, but then, Yawakrasangpa mm -hmm. and Yawakrasangpa, Yes, it told me They were very famous at that time also and were kind of popularly and widely accepted as Bodhisattvas. So those two, two names came up. And the author of this particular uh, uh, commentary, Minya Gunsu or Vishi Tutinjura, he lived in the 19th century. Can, please, can you get this book? Unless he wants to hear the story. <laughs> I think he's fine. It, it will, if I leave it here. <laughs> it's not a tick. Yeah. So, so uh, this author lived in 19th century. 19th, yeah, 19th century. Beginning of the 19th century, he was born and he passed away before the end of the century. He was speaking of his own teacher, among many, his own, among many, one teacher that he had received most number of teachings from Shantideva. And this teacher is Zapatu Rinpoche, who is the author of the work called Words of My Perfect Teacher. So he was saying that, yes, back then when there was a discussion reaching consensus on who really marveled in this, in embodying the teaching of Shantideva and in making it widely uh, public, uh, he was referring to their discussion and was adding his teacher, from whom he has received uh, Shantideva's teaching several, several times, several times, complete teaching several, many times, and then uh, specific themed 
teachings uh, even more. He was saying that, like them, his teacher at this time was also very instrumental in making Junjuk, Shandideva's text, very popular. And he was making this comparison during the time of Rendawa, one of the teachers of Tsongkhapa, Uma Madhyamika was made public, was made popular. Until then, there were some Madhyamika texts, but uh, it was not that popular, not that uh, commonly studied, nor were there acclaimed masters. Uh, but then, due to Rendawa's efforts, and then I think together with Tsongkhapa later on, uh, they made uh, Uma very popular and very uh, commonly studied uh, texts, much talked about Dharma teaching. So there was this expression. At that time, Madhyamika became everything. It's, it has become a household thing. The way of calling that is, even if you talk about nose, there will be something to do with Madhyamika. Even if you talk about food, there would always be something about Madhyamika. It's like nose Madhyamika, air Madhyamika, food Madhyamika, walking Madhyamika, or like that. So likewise, likewise, this master made Junjuk so popular that it almost was comparable to what became of Madhyamika then. It has become of Junjuk in that even if we talk about nose, there would always be something about, about Junjuk. To connect with it like that so to that extent he made it popular and in our time we have seen his holiness the dalai lama really uh encouraging everyone to study it particularly pointing us to the 60th chapter right and he has himself given teaching several several times even in my own collection i have two complete uh audio tracks of his holiness's teaching on Shinju. Uh, so, so that's uh, what I was referring to. So, and then here at the Abbey, Venerable has taught Shinjuk for so long and has really taken time in emphasizing on the gist of that teaching, which is exchanging self and others, equalizing and exchanging self and others. That is very crucial, and that is the gist of the teaching in, in Shantideva. I mean, as it should be, because it is. Uh, emphasizing the Bodhisattva's idol, Bodhisattva's practice. And, and, and it is such a relevant teaching in our time, because people are increasingly becoming, becoming more and more self-centered, more and more self-centered, and that's dragging them into more and more sufferings. And if only we could see how that is the one thing that needs to be taken out of the equation, then yes, so much would be much, much better at the So that said, let's uh, look at, we were, yeah, before we move on to the remaining part of stanza four, I want to bring your attention back to stanza four, beginning of it, through differences in their intelligence. In the translation, it says intelligence. In the Tibetan, it is law which is very general, and then looking at how the, the how the 
dynamics between the so-called common people and the yogis uh, kind of play out later on, I think it would be not just, it should be better to kind of broaden it to something like spiritual strength or mental strength. Uh, so through differences in their intelligence, through difference in their spiritual strength or inner strength or mental strength, yogis too are undermined by progressively higher ones. So at this point, we... Uh, so, yeah. So the reason why all of a sudden in the third and fourth stanza we come up, we come upon this division between two types of beings, yogis and common people, is that we have just talked about the two truths, and then it's a way of saying, who cares about the two truths? Who cares about it? Not that everybody gets it, but who at least make an attempt to get that, attempt towards that. Uh, or or strive to strive to think beyond the immediate needs and think of questions bigger than just the immediate needs in front of one's and thus leading to thinking about how we came here, where we go how things exist, what are the different layers or levels of uh, phenomena that, uh, that we deal with, etc. So that's the reason why this uh, discussion about the two divisions of people came up. And also uh, the discussion about, and also the, this, this entails from the discussion about the two, two truths, because the two truths the notion of true truth is something uh, that we want to train ourselves uh, into and then refine it further and further into until we get to the understanding uh, that is upheld by the Prasangika Matamika. Uh, so that's that's the connection there. That's the connection there. Uh, in terms of the main differences between these, uh, these these uh, groups of people uh, with their with their eye on something beyond the immediate need, so that it one could understand some deeper truths about one's existence and thus be able to uh, do something very effective in bringing a difference both in short term and the long term. Uh, so, in being able to do that. Uh, this uh, understanding about the two truths, uh, beginning with very gross ones to eventually refining it, refining it further into the understanding as presented in Prasangri Matemika is very crucial. So even in Umajupa, in Chandrakirti's Matemika Avatara also, it takes time in discussing the two truths before plunging into the uh, the discussion about the selflessness of phenomena and selflessness of person in this subtle sense. He says, for here, we need to take time in first discussing this and getting this right, so that then we could properly approach the discussion on the subtle selflessness of person and subtle selflessness of person. Uh, 
phenomena. So it is uh, important to uh, acknowledge that, understand that, and thus begin to think of the two truths more seriously. So when we talked about the division of beings thus inclined to kind of explore and and experiment further beyond than the immediate need, we talked about the yogis and the common people, uh, and we, we, did the dis, we did the division on a very simplistic way by saying uh, the main representative of the yogis would be, at the very least, the Aryas who have had direct encounter with the reality, and the common are, are those who not only has not reached there, but also has completely got it wrong. So the common one will be mainly represented by the so-called realists. And the yogis will be mainly represented by not only those who got it right, but also got it uh, kind of integrated to the level of having seen it directly. So those are the two main representatives. And associated with them are their, uh, associated with them are their uh, respective, uh, what do you call, uh, secondary members in each group. That's how we did that. Right? That's the more easier way of, and then carry that division all along the discussion through the next four, five, six lines. Another way of doing that is seeing this division of yogis and common as relative. Compared with this, this is yogi compared with this. In this context, this is common, this is yogi. And then in the next level, the yogi in the previous one becomes now a common and the other one becomes yogi. That's how then that uh, division doesn't become so strict, uh, so established, determined, but kind of is fluid. So I'm just mentioning it, not that I'm going to go into it because uh, we have already covered the main thing uh, to, to kind of alert you to certain commentaries that may uh, approach it that from that perspective. Uh, but for us, this is easier to stick to one category. And, and then, uh, so within the yogis, there will be the main representative will be Arya. Arya being who has seen the ultimate reality directly, directly. And associated with him, are with him or with her, are those who precede him or her in their progression. So those who are on the path of preparation, path of accumulation, even if not yet embarked on the path beyond, before that, but nonetheless uh, pursuing the understanding of emptiness in a correct way, or, or at least, uh, yeah, with the inclination and uh, some success in the in the grasp of the understanding. Those will be all included in the yogis, and then in the common, not only the realists who constitute the main category, main group, but even those who may be yet, who may yet to be influenced by philosophical thinking, who may yet be, uh, who may be yet to be influenced by uh, 
philosophical thinking or philosophy who may not yet who may have not yet developed philosophical bent of mind those could be also included in the so-called common but the common are those who have not yet gotten the understanding of emptiness let alone getting it but even kind of have a twisted understanding of it so that said it is important to first make this distinction very clear about what we call what we are calling what we are using the term realist right because the realist is already a term used in western philosophy and it has its own meaning there it may not completely map up to this map up to the buddhist uh, so it's perfectly okay if we do not use that term we come up with some other terms also but it is so important in the buddhist understanding particularly pursuing topics like this which have so much to do with the philosophical affiliation affiliation not so much in terms of being a party of this or not this but in terms of one's own philosophical upbringing and thus saying where does that upbringing stand at this point and and for the sake of convenience of dealing with them kind of grouping them in these uh, different tenet schools that's how one could see them so take the case of yeah take the case of the four philosophical tenets the last two vibhasaka and sautantrika they can be put together into one group and then if you include chitramatra in them then they become another group of course you do not have to i mean of course if we bring madhyamika also to the whole group then the whole group would be called something else <laughs> with this philosophical schools with this philosophical tenets holders but then with madhyamika outside if we put three together there is a way of calling them and you take chitramatra out and then just keep the first two and there's a way of calling them those are very established technical terms you need to be aware of so the the two together vipassika and sautantrika together are called dhammani dhammani means literally it means the two who profound external reality dhammani the two who profound external reality that means they are the two who says not only who not only says that that things are not mental projection they are not that things are there outside of the mind and then they go a step further in in saying that in kind of cementing it in in, in uh sending it by saying that things are not only there outside of the mind but they are so they are outside of the mind in such a way that in such a way that there will be no question whatsoever of any mental influence over them in how they are how in how they are in how they are established in how they exist and that is they say that things have an objective reference point building block things in in a way they are reductionist yes they are reductionist in from a buddhist perspective 
scientists are also reductionists, they are also reductionists, and they are reductionists more along the line of the scientists, uh, at least the modern scientists. Uh, at least, or maybe now things are changing. Yeah, in physics, they speak of quantum mechanics and whatnot, so I don't know where they lie. Anyway, uh, the Vaibhashika and Sautantikas, they say that things are not only externally existing, but they can be externally reducible to indivisible building blocks of their own. So to that extent, they they uphold, they advocate the externality of things. So in the case of mind, any mind, any mental event, any mental yeah, any mental phenomena, mental event can be reduced to an individual, indivisible, no more divisible uh, mental event. Uh, no more divisible. Of course, minds are not divisible in terms of parts, special parts, but they are divisible in terms of temporal parts. But in, in this case, if they can be reduced to such a level that you land on a mental event as such, mental event or mental thing that has no, not even the temporal parts. It is indivisible, partless uh, mental event. So likewise, they speak of the same in terms of the physical things. The physical things, the big things can be divided up further and further and further. Eventually, one will land on to land on a part of it which is indivisible and indivisible, and thus, uh, yeah, very concretely objective, objectively existing on its own. So in that respect, uh, to that extent, they they advocate the externality of phenomena. So things are not dependent on the minds, but rather they have their own objective reality and an objective reality in such a sense that they could be reduced to their own indivisible uh, ultimate uh, substratum or building block or reference point. So that's the reason why they are two together called Demanyi. The two the two that propounds uh, external reality. By the way, the Prasangagya Madhamikas also say yes there is external phenomena phenomena. They say that there is external phenomena uh, not agreeing with the Chitamatras. But they do not they ex accept external phenomena, just for the sake of saying that things are there outside of the mind, that there are things outside of the house, like there, is, like there are things outside of the house, there are things outside of the mind, and that things are not just merely projected by mind to the extent that the Chitamatras believe, where it's almost like anything can be sucked into the mind and then can be kind of released out, but nonetheless they kind of fall within the purview of the mind. That's what, that's to what extent the Chittamatras go, but the Madhemikas or the Madhemikas do not buy into that. So they say that there are external things, but their claim of external things is very different from what the Sautantra and the Vaibhashikas are claiming. So that's why 
Prasangik Madhavika doesn't get dragged into the proponents of external reality. <laughs> when we speak of these two groups, okay? So that's important to remember. We will come across this again and again and again. Now, when we bring Chitta Matra inside together and then form a group of three and in the Buddhist philosophical uh, world, then that, then that group is called Nguyamawa, for which we are using the term realist. But it is Nguyamawa. Nguyamawa means those who propound the proponents of things, the proponents of phenomena of, the proponents of things, the proponents of compounded things, or proponents of things being truly existent. So when you say, who are those who, pro who, propound, who advocate things that are truly existent, then you could of course count Vaibhashika, Sautantrika, but even also you can count the Chitta Matras also. But not any of the Madhimikas. None of the Madhimikas say things truly exist. Well, as, as I commented before also, they use to say things truly, things do not exist truly means that don't they exist at all. That's not the meaning here, but anyway, uh, just for the sake of uh, communication, we can use the term true existence with temporal, temporal trupa. So when we think of the three together, then they are called the proponents of true existence. So that means it leaves out the Madhimikas. Earlier when we spoke of the proponents of the external reality, we not only left out Chitamatra, which is very obvious, Chitamatras go to the extreme. They are kind of radical idealists. But by comparison, not as radical as Western idealists in the Western philosophy. Although there are some among the Tibetan scholars who, who interpret Chitamatra to that extent of saying there is no form at all in Chitamatra, but Tonkapa is not in that in that. On that side, he makes very clear that yes, they do say forms are there, but nonetheless, projections of mind. But then the form is form, not form is consciousness. But it is ultimately reducible to a consciousness. Consciousness, uh, consciousness produced latency. So, what do we mean by true existence? <laughs> Yeah, on a on a broad level, true existence. Yeah, true existence is not necessarily uh, those who are pro propound true existence do not necessarily have to say everything is truly existent. They 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 it, at least if they have some either all of the phenomena attributed so, or some of the phenomena attributed so, that is enough to put them in that category. So in the case of Chitamatras, they do not say external things or form. Mm. Oh, I don't know, if you say form, is form truly existent, then they would say, I think it does. Uh, but what about external phenomena? No, that external phenomena do not exist at all, and they are not truly existent. But definitely mind is truly existent. 
And in the case of the Vabashika and in the case of Sautantrika, just about anything they propose to be existent, uh, they say they are truly existent. So I think the same goes with Chitamatra also. But Madhimikas uh, do not allow do not allow for true existence just for anything. Irrespective of whether it is Swatantra, Swatantrika Madhimika or Prasangika Madhimika, they don't they say true existence, uh uh no no <laughs> okay. But we have yet to define what is true existence. <laughs> yeah, existing broadly speaking to be safe. Existing objectively, that doesn't go that far, right? <laughs> yeah, let me say like this: just about, just about any way of existing objectively you come up with, they would all say yes, 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 yes. So how about how about putting that as a criteria for true existence? Just about any way of existence that allude to objective reality, be that, oh, oh, let me look at my note. Oh, yes. Be that. I looked at Dr. Jimba's translation of the Illumination and looking for his translation into English of the portion in Kongbarapsel uh, when Tongkapa lists the six ways of existing. Six ways of existing. Six ways of, uh, six exaggerated ways of existing, out of which Swatantrika Madhimikas accept three, deny three. Prasangika Madhimikas deny all of them. So we can, we can, we can build our idea, idea, build our criteria of, uh, true existence along those lines. Take all the six and then say, whoever accepts things to be existing, in all of these six are proponents of true existence. <laughs> and then those who either say some of them who who either reject all all the six ways of existing, all the six ways of this six these six ways of existing, totally re deny all of them or deny part of them, then they do not belong to this group of realists or proponents of true existence. But I'm still struggling to come up with a way of calling to a way of grouping them in such a way that only Prasanga Madhamika is on one side and all the rest fall into one group. I do not have any 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 pardon? Yeah but what about Sautantrika? Okay. Yeah. yeah ten, school wise, uh, yeah, one can say that they form their own school or they are part of one school, in which case then uh, they will not be lower than schools. But yeah, I think you're right. From a passing about the point of view, they could be called lower than schools. But how about, yes? About those who assert inherent existence. Yes, uh, exactly. Uh, so 
calling them from a Prasanga Madhimika point of view, those who uh, are lower to Prasanga Madhimika, those who those who uh, those who accept inherent existence, uh, those that will definitely form a group. I may have uh, misspoken, uh, but my concern was I didn't find any any uh, scriptural uh, references of calling them into into group into this group. I haven't come across. I was thinking I was inclined to using the term nisubawa wad nisubawa wad the nisubawa wad the proponents of non non identityless yeah and the entity uh, proponents of entitylessness or proponents of identitylessness but I think I think if I'm not mistaken I think that is stretched to even cover Swatantrika Madhimika. Because, because calling the Madhimikas Madhimikas would be little, uh, little uncomfortable, because it's already establishing that they are the Madhimikas. They are in the middle ways. So when we speak of the four tenet schools, we should be impartial. <laughs> we should be impartial and not judging who is in, the, who has got it right or not. We could be just calling them by what they propose, what they. Uh, propose what they advocate, and there the term used in that spirit, the term used to call the Madhemikas is Nisubhavada, proponents of uh, entitylessness, proponents of identitylessness. I think so. In that case, uh, even Swatantrika Madhemikas are included in that. So that's why in the scriptures I didn't come across uh, an, uh, what you call. Uh, Technical way of separating Swatantrika and Asanga Madhimika and grouping all the rest. Yes. The one that is um, um, Pome, no, Jigme Wangpo, that's a definition. A proponent of entitylessness who does not accept anything that is established through self-characteristics, even on the conventional level. Yes. That is prasangika, so it excludes the swatantrika and diyamika. Yeah, but then there is a qualifier there added. Yes, that on a conventional level. Yeah, but, but by saying characteristics, something, something about... So the who does not accept anything that is so a proponent of entitylessness who yeah that's not, a general who does that, not accept anything yes yeah but then so that's uh, the madhyamika right then yeah the first one was madhyamika so that's the reason why I was saying the one those who propose could, could you repeat it a proponent of entitylessness so that is madhyamika in general yeah within that. Then the next one. Then who does not accept anything that is established through self characteristics, yeah, right. even on the conventional level. Yes, yes, yes. So that, so 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 this sides with me by saying that the Madhemikas are the proponents of entitylessness. Within that, you could then, pardon, yeah, non-entitylessness. Yeah, 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 entitylessness. Yeah. Yeah, uh, entitylessness, that's the Madhimika. 
within that, those who accept, those who say that there is no existence by self-characterization, even on a conventional level, then that would be specific to Prasankika. Uh, the other one proposing that would be Swatantrika Madhimika. So still, uh, the in the technical sense, the scriptures do not come up with a established terminology in uh, separating the two and putting the rest of all the others, putting Prasankika Madhya on the one side and all the rest uh, on the other hand. Mm -hmm. there, that may have to do with the historical development. Um, some people say that it was Tsongkhapa he, who really divided the Madhyamaka into two. Yes. The, yes. Uh, and of course, it was based on the discussion uh, between Buddha and Bhava Viveka and Chandagirti's putting it in, but that he was the one who actually, Tsongkhapa was the one that actually said, oh, they're different systems. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so in a way, we could say that, uh, that Tsongkhapa gave them the names, two groups of names. In terms of the difference, it was only there back then uh, at the time of this person. Yeah. Okay, so uh, anyway, the this the the the, uh, the distinction is there, uh, although it may not be a formal way of or a more popular way of uh, kind of putting them into two groups along the line of whether one accepts inherent existence or not. Okay, so this division is important to remember about. Uh, and whether or not we are using the term essentialists, realists, or whatever, one has to know what they are actually referring to, because the, the, the terms themselves, in and of themselves, are not descriptive of which group they are talking about. Particularly, these are essentialists, maybe a Buddhist term, uh, not common in Western philosophy, but realists, radicalists, empiricists, those are very commonly used in the Western philosophy, so uh, it may be a little difficult to differentiate the distinction. Yes. If Lama Tsongkhapa was the one that kind of gave these two schools of the Manyamaka their names and really solidified the distinction, then in the, is the emphasis on Prasangika Manyamaka, is that just a Geluk thing? Or did the other schools then take it on from the Geluk or from Tsongkhapa? Well, uh, it's a matter of whether we call them by those names, but in terms of distinction, it's already there. Uh, it's very clearly accepted that the writings of Rongsom Pentita, the Nyingma masters, uh, also, uh, yeah, is, uh, he, his writings on Madhyamika is very reflective of the positions of Shantarakshita. And who, Shant, Shanta, Shantarakshita. 
Rongsum. Yeah, Rongsum, Rongsum. Although in in the venerable in the texts we are editing, looking at, uh, you have something else. Maybe you're quoting His Holiness on another occasion, but in other in another occasion, His Holiness speaks of how in the writings of Rongsum is more alignment with the position of the uh, Chandrakshita, whereas in the writings of Longchen Ramchampa, Junjum Lingpa, uh, Prasangai Madhamika is very explicitly extolled like that. So the division, the, 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 what do you call it? The leaning was already there beforehand. It's just a matter of make, giving it a name. Although I'm not positively saying that it was Tsongkhapa who started it, because some even trace the term Rangyu, Rangyupa, in the writings of, uh, in the writings of, uh, I think Baba Viveka or uh, Buddha Palida himself, uh, in their, in their ref, in their mention of Rangyu Kita, in their mention of how mere, mere consequence is not enough. Mere absurd consequence, mere absurd at what is that? At uh, what do we what we call tenure? Yeah, but the technical term, technical Latin term, yeah, reductio at absurdum, reductio at absurd at at. Absurdum. <laughs> it must be very absurd. Even coming out is difficult. <laughs> so, so in in his in his uh, criticism of Buddha uh, Palita, he was insisting that mere reductio absurdum is not enough. Mere, mere use of consequence is not enough. There has to be, to establish something, there has to be a rangyu kita, there has to be a, a objectively sustainable uh, reasoning uh, to establish anything, to be able to establish anything. So there was even the use of the term rangyu, rangyu there, rangyu, rangyu, uh, what do you call, connoting uh, some kind of a uh, objective self-existence there. So rangyu kita, the the, the reasonings have to be uh, kind of have to be infused with some kind of a uh, strength of force of power in their in themselves to establish things. Mere reductio absurdum is not uh, enough. Yeah, that's Baba Veka in his criticism uh, of, of, of Buddha Palita. Yeah, maybe Rongzum Rongzum Pentita. Usually it is called Rongzum Pentita. I don't know what is his full name. He's a Nyingma master. But a very prolific writer and very much uh, respected. But I heard his holiness of the Lama commenting that his writings or even on Madhimika uh, reflects mostly the position, the leanings you will see in, in into 
Shantarakshita's position, who was a Yogacara, right? Yogacara, Sautantra Madhimika. Yeah, not just Sautantra Madhimika, but even Yogacara Madhimika with leanings more into, uh, not more, but equally into the Chittamatara's take of how things exist. So much so that he proposes three, three main meditation topics. Three main meditation topics for the three scope practitioners. Three different meditation mm, just so the main meditation themes. Whereas in the case of Sotandraka Madhimika, they may propose two with the short with the Shravakas and Prateka Buddha sharing one and the and the Bodhisattva Yana practitioners one. But in the case of Sandarakshita, he was among those who proposes even three different distinct main themes of meditation on their path. Whereas Prasangika Madhimika says that no, when it comes to the main theme of meditation, all three vehicle practitioners same. It's just a matter of what method aspect of practice they bring in that will uh, that will affect the equation. That will affect uh, which direction the, the practice goes. The way to say that would mean that each of those three different themes mean there's three different objects of negation. Yes, those three themes will be themes, yeah, in terms of what the object of negation is. That means the three themes in terms of view, in terms of their view. There's, I don't have a better way of calling it, in terms of the view, in terms of the view, in terms of the philosophical outlook, maybe, in terms of what they consider to be Mm. Yeah, the main. The, yeah, the main. The main view. The view is not an adequate English term. <laughs> we conduct meditation. Conduct is okay. Meditation, okay. View, view. What do we do with view? View really makes me. Yeah, but then if you call it philosophical outlook, that's again too broad. But main thing is what they consider to be, what what kind of a wisdom do they propose that needs to be cultivated by the three school practitioners? And so, in the case of this, uh, case of the Shantarakshita, he proposes three different. Three different wisdoms, main wisdoms. Yes. So is that is that three different wisdoms that then result in three different um, fruits, three to three different results? Yes. Yeah, that's what it's. That's the point of it, right? Yes. Yep. Yes. Yes.
Okay, we better push through a few lines. Uh, okay, so we, we said, out of them, the world of common... Uh, we're going back. Uh, beings are seen to be of two types, yogis and common, yog common people. Out of them, the world of common people is undermined by the world of yogis. So undermined in the sense that their understanding is their understanding is critiqued effectively by the yogis. Through differences in their intelligence or mental strength, yogis too can be said to be undermined progressively by the higher ones within the yogis. So here it will be not so much in critiquing and in and exposing some some among the yogis to be incorrect, but in terms of the strength of their understanding, in terms of the strength of their practice, they will outshine each other. So the yogi on the path of seeing would be outshined. Do you say outshined? Outshined by uh, the, the yogi on the path of meditation, likewise. Pardon? Yes, Archon, yes. Thank you. Through differences in their intelligence or mental strength or spiritual cultivation, or through the differences in their strength of practice, yogis too are undermined by progressively higher ones. So here, this undermining is not so much of completely correcting their, their strength, their viewpoint, but uh, kind of uh, outshining them in terms of the strength of it uh, to, the ex to the extent uh, they can uh, address subtler afflictions or subtler, uh, yeah, subtler afflictions. So what I have suggested changing is, by means of example accepted by both, is putting these two lines Putting these two lines together with the next five, next four lines, put them into one group, six, uh, six, six lines group. And then instead of calling them refuting objections from the proponents of inherent existence, I'm bringing the next caption above, ahead here, refuting the realists in general. That way it will be easier to. So that's what I'm just suggesting. So, and then defining what we call realist, refuting the realists who are the proponents of true existence in general. So refuting the realists in general. So we, when we say realist, it includes Chitamatra, Vaibhashika, Sautantra. When we speak of proponents of external ex existence, we, we only talk of Vaibhashika and Sautantra together. And then there are ways of calling talking of each one of them separately also. But when we speak of proponents of external existence, those two are talked about together. When we talk of realists or proponents of true existence, we talk of the three, including Chitramatra together. So this section, this section from this point onward, to a certain extent, uh, the author takes time in refuting the position of the realists in general, and then eventually he would separate down to um, to focusing on the positions of Chitta
And let me just briefly open this. By means of examples accepted by both, by both, emptiness is established, unanalyzed, the, the practitioners engage in training, or practitioners engage in training for the sake of the result. There's so much to be read between the lines, and one has to bring in additional background idea here. Otherwise, uh, it, will be, it will not be complete. Basically, the, the realists in general are saying, you talk to the Prasangika Madhya Magazine, you talk a lot about empty inherent existence. What in the world are you talking about? One, the notion of emptiness that you are proposing, that you are pro uh, pushing, is not viable. Or viable in the sense that it 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 doesn't exist. That the the notion of emptiness that you are proposing is a non-existence. It's a friend of uh, Rabbit's horn. <laughs> and then saying even if allowing that it is existent, even if allowing that it is existent, uh, it's not relevant. It's not relevant, it's, it's not viable. Even if allowing that there is something called lack of inherent existence. But that's not significant, and that doesn't do much. That doesn't do anything significant. So those are the two, uh, two what do you call, mm, acquisitions uh, put forth by the realists. And then saying that, oh yeah, the saying that, that what you are proposing as things being lacking inherent existence is totally non-existent, is totally baloney, and that even if self exist, allowing that it is existent, there's no way you can prove it to us. That's one thing. The other one is that even if allowing that you you, you succeed in proving it to to be next to be the case to be existent, it has no relevance. It has no significant relevance in our life. So those are the two. Two reasonings. And to which the Prasangika Madhimeka responds by saying, not only emptiness or the lack of inner existence exists, but it is something that can be even proven. So that's the first line. Proven by how? By means of examples that is accepted by both of us, you realists and I non-realists. <laughs> yeah, both of us accept. There are examples that both of us accept without question, and through the uses of those examples, I can prove it that yes, things do lack inherent existence, and 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 you and and his and person Gamalimika saying, you see, I will prove it. <laughs> I don't have to go too far fetched in in looking for examples, but right here 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 are examples that we both agree, and I can use them. And then saying, of course, supposing that you accept, you succeed in establishing that it exists, and yeah, and you succeed in establishing it, there will be no, no, no relevance of it. It doesn't do much in terms of actually making an impact in one's life, because after all, you should be also accepting that things, things function the way they do distinctly. And because they function the way distinctly, they do distinctly, 
one is capable of one thing, the other is not. Likewise, even very, very minute things, seemingly uh, insignificant things, have their own have have their own uh, relevance, and we feel the need of them, and they are capable of functioning something that other big things cannot do. So they have their own distinct functionality. Because of that, they must be existing. Truly, they must be existing. Truly, they must be existing objectively. Otherwise, how would you account for these things on the mere basis of seeing that things are mere projected? If things were to be mere projected, why can't you project the same functionality to everything? Irrespective of where you touch, everything should be function, able to function the same way. But that's not the case. And I hope you're also agreeing with me in this. They're saying that to them. Prasanga Madhavikas also say, yes, we do, but... <laughs> and then the Prasanga Madhavikas are saying, yes. The distinction is whether we talk in terms of... whether we talk uh, in terms of how things turn out to be, what things turn out to be under analysis, and what things are when they are left unanalyzed. There's a big difference. So the same thing, same thing can behave differently, or same thing can, yeah, same thing can behave differently under the lens of analysis and without it. And on the basis of the thing's existence, when they are not under the radar, under the lens of analysis, the functionality, on the basis of that functionality, we can speak of the conventionalities, but not, and that I have no problem in accepting. Except I am saying that when it is put under analysis, not only they are not able to function the way they are, they do not even exist in the, in, in the face of such an analysis. So that's what I'm talking about, not in this very trivial, simplistic way you're putting it. <laughs> okay, I think we'll leave it here. <laughs> so I just opened the lines, okay? <laughs> so uh, this one I'm calling it so refuting the real realists the proponents to existence in general number A by refuting non-existence or irre irrelevance of the either the fact or the notion of emptiness under this we will discuss the next six lines and then what Original translation has captioned as A will be now B, will be refuting contradiction with direct perception. But don't bother much about what changes I'm speaking of, uh, if it's too much of a confusing thing. Just uh, stick with the original and just uh, make sense of the spacing that I've cared to introduce in there. Okay.